Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. What you are about to hear is a webinar recorded earlier today entitled Blockade, Bombings, and Continuing Trauma, Assessing Mental Health in Gaza. For the resources that the participants cite in the webinar, please go to our website, www.fmep.org. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome everyone. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I am Dr. Yara Asi. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida in the School of Global Health Management and Informatics. And I'm also a co-director of the Palestine Program for Health and Human Rights. So welcome to today's webinar, uh, Blockade, Bombings and Continuing Trauma, Assessing Mental Health in Gaza. Today is August 2nd, 2023. Um, so some housekeeping before we begin and as, as people continue to file in, the format for today's webinar will be a discussion format between the panelists and myself. We will end around 12.15 Eastern time. Um, it is, as I noted, being recorded and also live streamed on Facebook. So if you're joining us live on Facebook, uh, we can't see you, but welcome as well. Um, we are eager, of course, to take audience questions, and I will attempt to weave them into my own questions for the panel. So please submit them via the Q&A feature at the bottom of the Zoom window, and you can do so at any time throughout the panel. Um, I'll be keeping an eye on the questions coming in, and I will do my best to incorporate them as they fit organically into the conversation and if we have time for formal Q&A at the end. Please keep an eye on the chat box as the panelists are speaking. My colleagues at FMEP will be putting useful links and information in the box throughout the discussion. And our panelists have a lot of amazing work uh, that I think you, you'd be interested in seeing. So definitely keep an eye on that. We will also share those via follow-up email. And finally, please note that we have enabled the closed captioning function via Zoom. So you can uh, read the discussion and follow along if you'd like. Uh, so more than 15 years into Israel's blockade of the Gaza Strip, and after multiple rounds of devastating Israeli bombing campaigns, as well as the violence seen during the Great March of Return, life in Gaza continues to become more difficult and, of course, traumatic for the two million Palestinians who live there. Half of Gaza's population are children, which makes the collective punishment enacted on the small territory particularly egregious. And compounding the injustice is the ongoing silence of the international community, which often speaks the language of human rights while only hesitantly acknowledging the trauma endured in Gaza only during active bombing campaigns without any significant international effort to hold Israel accountable for its destruction and deprivation of the territory, both with airstrikes and other forms of military violence, but of course by the siege itself. So what is it like to live under such conditions with no end or reprieve in sight? And today I feel very fortunate to host a conversation among experts about the current state of mental health in the Gaza Strip and what it might mean for the future of Gaza's residents. Um, among other things, we will look at the findings from a recent mixed method study conducted over two years uh, by Physicians for Human Rights Israel and the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. So I am delighted to be joined by my guests, Dr. Yasser Abu Jamai, Rada Majadli, and Razan Quran. And I want to give short introductions to each now, and of course, fuller bios of all of them are available on the FMEP website. Um, 
Dr. Yasser Abu Jamai is a psychiatrist and the Director General of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. He was born in 1974 in Saudi Arabia and has received degrees in the mental health field from universities in the UK, Germany, Lithuania, and Gaza. He has lived in Gaza since 2000 and has been working at the Gaza Community Mental Health Program since 2004, becoming its director in 2014. His research has focused on the impact of ongoing violence and the 15-year blockade of Gaza on the physical and psychological health of children and their caregivers, and the connection between public health and human rights. Welcome. Uh, Ghada Majadli is a researcher, human rights activist, and the director of the Department of the Occupied Palestinian Territory at Physicians for Human Rights Israel. She holds a master's degree in human rights and transitional justice from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Her work focuses on policy and humanitarian work in Palestine, with particular attention to the Israeli regime's multi-layered system of control and management of Palestinians' health, including access to medical care, socio-political determinants of health, and health infrastructure. Welcome, Rada. And lastly, we have Razan Quran, a Palestinian organizer, psychologist, and facilitator. Razan is currently a doctoral candidate at George Washington University and a pre-doctoral intern at Boston Medical Center. And she's a co-founding member of the Psychoanalysis in the Arab World Lab at George Washington University. Welcome, thanks for joining. Uh, so to get started into the conversation, I'd like to start first with Dr. Yasser, and I'd like to start from the very beginning. Uh, you know, this is a conversation about mental health. So let's make sure we're on the same page about what exactly it is we're talking about. So can you, from your extensive experience doing this work in the Gaza Strip, uh, what do we mean by mental health in the Gazan context? Thank you very much, Chiara. Good afternoon, everyone. Good morning for people in the States. It's really an honor to join you today. Well, um, let me begin by reminding everyone of what I really like, uh, the definition that I like, which is the definition of mental health that the WHO uses. It says it's a state of mental health well-being that first enables people to cope with the stresses of life. Second, realize their abilities. Third, learn well and work well. And then fourth, contribute to their community. I all the time recall these four, let me say, pillars or components of mental health when talking about Gaza Strip. And uh, that's because it's really challenging to apply that definition uh, or to have it strictly applied to the conditions in Gaza Strip for many reasons. First, let's begin with the title of this event. You know, The title says it all. Is uh, blockade, bombings, and continuous trauma. Let's talk about these three components. And this is a little bit ironic, but uh, we are under blockade for now more than 15 years. And to many people who were trying to come and leave Gaza Strip in the last 15 years, they were, you know, imagining what does the blockade mean, what does it entail, you know. Uh, however, with the uh, COVID-19 that continues to span the globe for two years, a lot of people started to tell us now we understand what does it mean to live under a blockade, you know. And that's simply because, one, they experience what does the blockade mean, because it was under the title of social distancing. 
which meant two things. First, that we are really uh, away from uh, our beloved ones, one. And second, uh, difficult economic conditions or worsening economic conditions. And, and those two, let me say, uh, issues have meant a lot to the Palestinian people in Gaza Strip over the last many, many uh, years. Uh, blockade is a restriction of movement. That's the very minimal uh, understanding of it. It yielded a lot of economic problems. Uh, and I'll give a couple of figures you know, that I all the time like to bring up, which is the level of employment and the level of poverty. Um, unemployment rate is about 45% now in Gaza. It's good. It was 53% a couple of years ago during the, 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 the uh, um, uh, pandemic. So now it improved to 45%. But if you look to people below the age of 30, unemployment goes up to as much as 74% uh, among the graduates, by the way. But it's in general about 60%. Uh, when it comes to poverty, more than half of the population are under poverty rate. So if you speak about the mental health that is under continuous, you could apply the words of Sarah Roy under continuous uh, uh, economic de-development. And we add to that the catastrophic attacks on Gaza that happens every now and then, three times in the last three years. Then you can imagine the level of stresses that people are exposed to. That's the first issue. And then the ability to learn and to work. It's very connected, you know, how can we assist the ability of people to work when more than half of the population are under employment? You know, they are not even capable of being productive. When we speak about 74% of people below the age of 30 who have finished uh, uh, faculty or university degree, they are not able to, uh, to work. When you speak about, for example, 65% of graduates of engineering faculties below the age of 30 are not employed. So what kind of ability to, to feel that you are really are capable of learning well and working well? And finally, contribute to your community. You know? uh, whether as parents, can you help your children? Big question. As parents, can you protect your children? Another question. As parents, can you economically finance your children's studies, for example, this is another question. Um, are you capable of just moving on with your life? It's another big difficulty question. And then finally, and to give to the floor to my colleagues, then comes the question, well, these continuous attacks that happen in Gaza Strip, uh, do they traumatize people? Do they make people more resilient? You know, And sometimes this you know, double message whether those people in, in Gaza Strip or in Palestine, by the way, at large, are more resilient because they can go on with their lives or it's just because there is no escape and there is no other way but to struggle and to continue to live. So these are some questions that hopefully we'll be able to answer. Thank you. Thank you for, for that multifaceted look at mental health. And I think what sticks out to me from that is just so much uncertainty and such lack of control over your ability to parent, to work, to finish your education. And, and of course, the connections with mental health there are, I think, obvious. Um, to follow up on, on that explanation, Rada, I'd like to turn to you. Um, Physicians for Human Rights Israel works throughout historic Palestine. Um, 
And we're going to spend this hour together focused primarily on mental health in Gaza, drawing from this study that PHRI and the Gaza Community Mental Health Program just completed on this topic. Um, before we do that, from your perspective, from PHRI, I want to ask you to talk to us a bit about how you understand the concept of mental health and how it can be understood in relationship to Palestinians throughout historic Palestine. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Yara, and uh, good afternoon, good evening for everyone. I'm also honored to be here today and to join uh, other colleagues in this conversation. Um, so in our view, the mental health um, discourse cannot be divorced from the political and historical context um, in which since the Nakba, uh, Palestinians uh, have lived in an inherently violent and eliminatory reality of settler colonialism uh, and also um, occupation. Um, in the Nakba of the 48, uh, the social fabric of the Palestinian people was dismantled. Palestinians were doomed to live in a fragmented, um, as a fragmented people in spaces and also uh, into classes with different legal and political statuses, uh, where also um, Palestinians, including in the diaspora, lived in isolation from uh, their uh, geographical, cultural, and national continuation, uh, and they were robbed of their cultural heritage. This understanding is very important for us, not only uh, in how uh, we view the health in general, but also uh, the mental health of uh, Palestinians. Um, and since the Nakba was a traumatic and a foundational event uh, that has never been recognized and is still uh, ongoing, we talk about mental health uh, when there is no real space for uh, healing. And uh, in addition for the trauma experienced uh, by the first generation of the Nakba and the military rule uh, that uh, Palestinians in 48 were subjected to, uh, they also suffer from structural and intentional violence, discrimination, and racism. Palestinians in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip are subject to military occupation and uh, the blockade. And all of this is part of a settler colonial ideology and practice in which uh, we believe that health and mental health must be contextualized. Uh, second, we view Palestinian mental health um, as one that impacted by social and political determinants of health. Um, in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, the mental health of Palestinians is impacted, for example, by violence, whether um, repeated military attacks on the Gaza Strip, as we will see also in the findings that we will uh, present, or um, home invasions by the Israeli army and settlers on Palestinian homes in the West Bank, which also tremendously affect the health of Palestinians, including uh, children. Also, um, mental health uh, is impacted by the physical health and vice uh, versa, both in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and for Palestinians living in the, um, 
in, in 48 or in Israel. Um, and the mental health of Palestinians is impacted also by the structural discrimination concerning, for example, health allocations, health infrastructure, the green spaces, and uh, budget for education, and uh, more. So if we talk about um, disparities between uh, Palestinians and Israelis, whether inside of Israel or in the occupied uh, territories, these also uh, uh, impact the, the mental health of Palestinians and include other mental health uh, conditions. Thank you, Rada. I think that's such an important answer. And I think it helps scholars and those interested in mental health um, in Palestine recognize that you know mental health outcomes, it's not just a, a humanitarian or medical issue to be dealt with through treatment or intervention, but it really requires acknowledging all of these historical and political and social factors. And I think uh, you know more of the, of the work done really needs to acknowledge that. So thank you for that. Um, Razan, I'd like to turn to you next. Uh, you are joining us today as both a mental health practitioner and also a scholar. And I want to ask you about one specific element of mental health scholarship. And that kind of builds off of, of that point. Uh, measuring mental health outcomes is so important. Um, and But if the data is stripped of context, of social determinants, of you know, history, like Rada so, so neatly pointed out, then it, it, it's, it, it loses its meaning um, in terms of what actual solutions and interventions look like. Measuring and describing mental health trauma in such a context of ongoing violation and injustice, sometimes, you know, if, if it's, you're just looking at the biomedical model, places the abnormality within the individual and not in what it's like to live in an abnormal environment. You know, I think to be depressed and anxious and have trauma living in such an environment is not abnormal. It's completely a normal response. Um, but as public health professionals, we also need to be able to document, you know, mental health struggles and present that data in international contexts, you know, publishing in peer reviewed journals or being able to present comparative work or even just to describe to people less familiar with the context. So can you talk about this tension between recognizing the limitations of measuring mental health in an environment like the Gaza Strip, along with why it's so important for us as mental health uh, practitioners and scholars to, to actually do so? Yes, um, thank you for the question, Yara, and Masal Khair for everyone joining um, Sharq al-Awsat. Good morning for those on the West Coast and good afternoon on the East Coast. Um, yes, that's definitely a tension. And um, I think that it's important to do what you just did. So you're modeling for us, Yara, an importance here, which is um, speaking to the tension. What you're doing by, by speaking to it is you're exposing the ideology behind it. What you just described is a very like neoliberal approach, which pathologizes the individual and eliminates or obscures the context, the situation, the structural and systematic. Um, so I, I always think that even in very quantitative research methodologies, you know, to, to mention that, to name that as one of the limitations to the research, in addition to kind of um, bringing light to it. Um, I also think that if I look at it in a, in a way, many of the psychological um, assessment tools we have today have been normed on populations predominantly in the West 
predominantly in economically privileged um, scenarios and situations. And so even here, um, as I study in the United States, when I'm doing neuropsychological assessments, I have to consider when I'm administering something like the MMPI, um, it's like a multifacet personality inventory, or something even as the ways like an it's an intelligence assessment for to know if someone has a learning disability and what kind of accommodations for the individualized education plan in the US context. Um, I always have to look at, you know, what are the identities this person holds and what are the contexts they're emanating from so that I understand is their processing speed showing me an issue with like, you know, attention deficit disorder, or is it showing me both like a reality of not having breakfast in the morning, not having st stable housing, um, disrupted, you know, caregiving situations. And so I think when we look at Palestine and Gaza in specific, it is very important to have those measures because it allows us to kind of have a discussion globally and internationally. Um, and at the same time, uh, it, it gives us a lens into Palestinian reality. I feel that often the Palestinian subjectivity is one that's flattened and we don't look at the multidimensionality. So there's also this other wave to just go fully into looking at the structural and systematic that foregoes that people also have their idiosyncrasies and differences. And so rather than us be like pulled from one pole to the other, to kind of maybe more so approach it like a dance where you take a step forward, take a step back, and together it gives this beautiful rhythmic movement um, and, and really sheds light on the multiplicity of, of a, who a Palestinian is. Um, even amongst us, Rada, Yasser, and myself were raised in very different parts of historic Palestine. Um, we have similarities and we also have these differences and not to feel like we need to flatten it. Um, I also think that um, it's really important to recognize with these measures, what are the preconditions establishing the symptoms? If we go directly to address the symptom, then you, you can very much eliminate a symptom. Right, so if someone's like, I'm, I'm suffering of sleeplessness, you might prescribe a medication, you might do a few like, you know, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and ACT has a lot of like, how do you address this in like 12 or nine sessions? <laughs> but if we don't look at what is the root or precondition of that, another symptom is going to emerge in its place. And so it is also important to look at it in a way. It makes it more complex, but you know, human beings are complex. And I think that's something that is both um, exciting for us to, to lean into. Um, and there's so much left to learn. Um, did that answer it, Yada? Yes, absolutely. And I think sometimes just acknowledging that that tension exists and recognizing that some works are focused on looking at outcomes and some works are focused at looking at determinants. And I think also hearing from your perspective as a practitioner, looking at any patient, you know, you have to consider their personal and their intergenerational story and history. And um, I think, you know, as, as we apply it to broader populations like the Palestinians, that's that's very valuable insight. So thank you. Um, for, for bringing that, especially ahead of my next question, which is specifically about a study that is looking at health outcomes. Um, so, and uh, this is what we'll spend our next uh, few minutes talking about. Um, so Reda, I, I'm, I'm coming to you um, from your position at PHRI. Can you kind of start us off with telling us about, this was a two-year study looking at mental health in Gaza. Obviously, a lot has happened in the Gaza Strip over the past two years. 
Um, so can you tell us just the logistics of the study? Who designed it? What were the goals? What did it aim to find out? How was it conducted? I noted earlier that it was a mixed methods study. And could you give us some of your top line main findings? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, so uh, the research was a one of the components of a larger joint project between PHRI and the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, uh, which was funded by the EU a, and included several aspects, uh, such as training and conferences for mental health practitioners in the Gaza Strip, uh, joint mobile clinics, local and international advocacy, and also um, public outreach around the state of mental health and the impact of uh, the blockade and Israeli human rights violation on the physical and mental health of uh, Gazan women. Uh, it was a three-year project started maybe in 2020, if I recall, and it was paused because of the COVID-19 and then um, we continued the project in 2021. Uh, which also the project included two, year, two years of uh, research. Um, we had a joint steering committee from both organizations uh, that designed a, the research. Uh, it consisted of uh, experts and researchers from um, various fields, such as mental health, medical anthropology, gender, and uh, sociology. Um, the study uh, addresses the link between Israeli human rights violations, uh, which includes also uh, the blockade, the Great March return um, assaults, and repeated military attacks on the Gaza Strip, and uh, Palestinians' mental health, specifically uh, adult women in the Gaza Strip. Um, it also investigated uh, the extent to which adult women were exposed to the Israeli human rights violations in the Gaza Strip and their effect on uh, their physical and mental health. Um, these violations were also contextualized as part of an inherently violent reality of the ongoing blockade, the occupation, and as I said, the repeated military assault on the Gaza Strip. Um, we used a, as you said, Yara, um, mixed methods study of a, the impact of human rights violation on women in Gaza, including also a survey developed by mental health professionals uh, from the Gaza Community Mental Health Program and from PHRI. Um, the survey was answered by uh, 424 women, adult women, who also attended the Gaza Community Mental Health Program community centers and a futurized mobile clinics in Gaza. The survey was also followed by 19 in-depth interviews conducted with women who had, um, who had scored highly for depression and anxiety in the survey. So just to give um, to give you um, like a, an idea about the participants, we uh, the participants were uh, women aged 
24 to 45 years. Um, half, over half of the participants also lived in refugee camps in the Gaza Strip. More than 90% were also unemployed and lived below the poverty line in Gaza. So uh, as for the findings, I'm gonna um, address and present only a uh, few of the findings. Uh, we will be sending you also a two pages with more uh, information and more detailed also quotation. Uh, I can start by saying that the findings showed a clear link between the exposure to human rights violations and also uh, the accompanying traumatic experience. Uh, with these violations and the mental health conditions. So uh, to give you a couple of um, rates, 64.9 percentage of the women showed signs of psychological distress. 47.6 percentage of these women demonstrated severe psychological distress and 80.9 percentage of the women suffered from severe anxiety. Uh, as well, women also uh, reported emotional distress in light of the repeated military attacks and the bombings, uh, where they fear, um, uh, they fear death, uh, they fear also uh, repeated uh, bombings and uh, a attacks. Uh, in the future as well. They fear uh, the losing of family members and losing their homes. Actually, fear was one of the most uh, prevalent uh, when we talk about the emotional distress uh, demonstrated by the women who were interviewed for the in-depth interviews. Um, for many of these women, this fear was actually a result of witnessing distressing scenes, including the death or, of their family members and of their uh, neighbors. Uh, this woman also described uh, the intense fear of a um, of the, the intense fear experienced by their own their own children during the Israeli attacks, which also affected them and affected their emotional distress and resulted in a, a fear experienced by these women. Um, I quote one of the women uh, in one of the interviews who said that um, fear is all I fear is all I feel. I fear walking up to the news of death of X and Y. Um, Hopelessness was also one of the emotional um, uh, emotional conditions that uh, was reported by these women, uh, and it was a result of the ongoing also the ongoing exposure to the trauma, and um, a, it was demonstrated by expressing. A, a loss of hope for a secure life in Gaza, the stability, the ability to plan for the future as well, or even uh, any chance of having a, an improvement in their economic and political conditions in Gaza. Uh, so in one of the interviews, one of the women said that, I don't think we are going to survive in the next War. And we have uh, other quotation that uh, you can see also in the two pages. 
So uh, I'm not sure how much time I also have, but I'm gonna also say uh, something about other findings where uh, the findings revealed a grave violation of women's right to life and also to their health. Uh, the most no noticeable was the threat to their life and the lives of their family members. 35.6% uh, of these women lost one of their family members for the Israeli military assaults. 357 uh, uh, lost a family member after they didn't receive a medical exit uh, permit from the Israeli authorities. Uh, uh, all women, almost all women experienced the attacks by the Israeli uh, military and some of them actually experienced more than one uh, Israeli attacks on the Gaza Strip. Um, as to the right to health, uh, more than 30% of the women uh, who attended the Gaza Community Mental Health Centers and also our mobile clinics uh, were injured during the attacks on the Gaza Strip. 65% uh, of them uh, who participated also in the Great March return suffered from uh, injuries. And one of the most striking uh, data is that 70% were also unable to access essential medical treatment and life-saving treatment due to the restrictions uh, enabled by the Israeli perpetrators. Wow, um, thank you uh, for sharing uh, those those initial findings. Um, it's, you know, the levels of fear and hopelessness that you document um, in some ways not surprising, yet somehow shocking at the same time. And I want to reiterate that these, some of these main findings uh, we just shared in the chat and we will follow up via email. And also it's just striking to me that it's, you know, it's, it's on both ends. It's, it's the increased risk of violence to oneself or to a loved one, and then the inability to receive and access the care that they may need to deal with the results of, of that violence and deprivation. So yeah, quite stark findings. Thank you, Ada. Um, Dr. Yasser, I'd, I'd like to turn to you next. Um, as Rada noted, uh, this study is mostly focused on women and women's experiences. So can you tell us about the ways in which you've, in your experience, you've seen women experience mental health struggles in Gaza? What is particularly gendered about these experiences? Um, we know that in Gaza, civilian spaces are vulnerable, uh, completely vulnerable to bombardments. You know, the Israeli Air Force bombs apartment buildings, homes. We've seen schools and hospitals and, you know, children playing outside, um, get, getting bombed. There isn't really a battlefield that is outside of the home. So during these bombardments, there is really no feeling of safety. Um, at the same time, uh, like in many contexts around the world, women are primarily responsible for the home and for the family and the needs of the children. And under conditions of siege, it is exceptionally hard for these basic needs to be met, you know, bombardment aside. So can you talk to us about the specifics of trauma and mental health factors and challenges as women in Gaza facing these multi multiple fronts of violence and, and oppression and deprivation how and how they face them uh and i can i can begin with some few examples you know uh, let me talk about the uh displaced people you know 
for example, in, in May 2021, uh, more than 100,000 people were destroyed from their homes, you know. And uh, this was not the biggest number of displaced people. In 2014, more than 500,000 people were displaced from their houses. We speak about then about one fourth of the population, they were displaced from their homes. At the end of the attacks in 2014, uh, more than 100,000 people didn't find a place to return to because their houses were either completely destroyed or not inhabitable anymore. In 2021, the number is lesser because uh, people who are fleeing from the uh, bordering sites, you know, the very eastern sites of Gaza Strip, didn't really find it meaningful to go to the western side. As you said, we don't have shelters here in Gaza Strip. It's a small, tiny geographical area, which is about 8 to 12 miles in width and about 24 miles in length. So you can imagine if the bombardment comes from the air, you know, it comes from the eastern side, artillery, it comes from everywhere where people can uh, seek a hide uh, away. You know, we don't have really shelters in Gaza. The only places that people waste were running to is at Onorwa school. You know, In 2014, on average, there were about, I think, more than 110,000 people who were crowding 50 Onorwa schools. You know, they, these were the, the shelters. On average, there were 2,000 people in school. Now, let's imagine how women had to deal with the very basic needs of their kids under these circumstances, you know, when an attack is happening and a lot of children, a lot of women are stuck in the same uh, place with women who would really sleep on the streets or go to sleep in the mosques, you know, during those uh, uh, times. And then when the time is over, when the attacks is over, how women were really managing, managing their daily the, the daily uh, issues, daily issues, I mean, just, you know, you know washing the clothes, uh, preparing food, uh, uh, taking care of the kids, you know, just looking after their family, like just, you know, uh, even it's, a, it's an issue whether you can give your child a hug or not, you know, because again, it takes a lot of efforts when you are under attack, you don't have anything in mind that you can offer really to calm or to soothe them there fear the anxiety, the stresses of the kids, you know, when you hear the loud bombardments, what can you say? What can you tell your children? And you know that you cannot really lie to them. You cannot give them a false, let me say, uh, statement that will undermine your rule, you know, that will make you look like a liar, you know, that will lose, uh, will make them lose their trust uh, uh, in you. And uh, uh, that's not something that happened only like during the attacks, you know, those difficult conditions or stresses that are on the shoulders of mainly women. Now, the blockade also meant a lot. In the very beginning years of blockade, imagine that, you know, we had a problem with finding clothing for children, for example. Shoes for children were not available in the markets for the very first uh, couple of, of years when the blockade started, you know. Uh, now it's limited to many other issues, but I mean, we had so much difficulty in just going on with our lives for like for a, for a joke. Uh, you know, not a single woman was really capable of showing a, a complete set of glasses, for example, when they had guests or so, because even glasses were not uh, allowed to come into Gaza. That's in 2008, nine or so. So, so uh, and then for the daily living conditions, I mean, uh, uh, more than half of the population live under poverty rate. One third of the population live under severe poverty rate. 
We have half of the uh, population in Gaza Strip are children. So you imagine that half of the women in Gaza Strip have to deal with severe economic conditions, with poverty, and at the same time to try to help their children. And we add to that that we have a problem of power supply. We have to add to that we have a problem with with uh, with potable uh, water. Ninety five, I think now ninety seven percent of the water in Gaza is not potable. It's not good for for drinking. And I always say, let's look at the daily life of women in Gaza Strip. That's any woman. On average, we have about five kids per, per family. And because we have overcrowded schools, the schools have to operate in two shifts, one morning shift and one afternoon shift. So on average, two kids or three will go to the morning shift and the other two or three will go to the afternoon shift. That's between 6.30 a.m. They will leave home the first shift and then we'd come back by about 11.30, 11.40. The second group will leave the house at 11.30 and will come back at about maybe 4.30 or 5 p.m. And then the mother has to take care of the whole process, which means wake up early morning, six at the latest, usually 5, 5.30. She would wake up the children, try to uh, help them with breakfast, try to provide them with the available clothing, you know, and prepare them to go to schools. That's by 6.37, that's the morning, uh, the very early morning task. A couple of hours later, she has to deal with the afternoon shift kids. They will go to school. A couple of hours later, or sorry, within the hour, the morning shift kids will be back from schools. A few hours later, the afternoon shift will be back from schools. And then within those like hours, like between 6 a.m. and 5 p.m., she has also to deal with the uh, with the washing, with the clothing. This is a, in, in, in Gaza Strip, it's, a, it's more of a male-dominated society, which means that a lot of taking care of the issues at home are on the shoulders of women. And this is really extremely heavy issue to deal uh, with. Now, let's keep in mind one, one, one example. Nowadays, because of the heat conditions we have uh, on average, we have power supply for six hours and then it's off for 10 hours, something like that. You know, it should be eight and eight. That's the best we hope, eight hours on and eight hours off. Let's talk about eight hours on and eight hours off. And then we have the golden moments, if you could say. I like to call them, to call them the golden times. Uh, 6 a.m., 2 p.m., and 10 p.m. And that's where the power supply gets off or gets on. So imagine that the kids are coming back from school and it's a muddy day, you know. And as I, as I said, half of the population live under poverty rate. I think they will have only one set of, of clothing, of school clothing per child. Imagine that the uh, clothes are dirty. You know, what would the, um, uh, the, the mother do? You know? Well, wash the clothes because they have to be prepared for tomorrow morning. But what if the power supply is not there? And this struggle is not something that happens only once a month. It's, it's part of the daily struggle of women. That's their lives. And let's come back <clears throat> to the definition that I already mentioned about mental health. Women are uh, lovely creatures. Like everyone else, they have the right to have some leisure time. And please tell me, where is that leisure time that a mother would have in Gaza Strip? That's one question. Another question, do they have time of, let me say, peace, complete safety or security that they will be able to restore their, let me say, uh, a reservoir of coping mechanisms, you know? That's another big question, you know. When we have the drones that are filling the skies day and night, 
We don't have now any attacks on Gaza for the last few months, but then the question is, when we keep in our mind that the most frequent event that was reported by the, the, the interviewees was that 98.8% of them were hearing the loud noises of the drones, and those drones continue to be there 24-7. So the, 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 the life itself is a very difficult one. Supporting figures uh, are not, I think, their husbands. It's a male-dominated society, but again, they are the main breadwinners, which means that they are under tremendous pressure when you have 45% unemployment, where well, you know how we are going to continue to survive, to live. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's a harsh environment. And women have uh, and already endured bravely with these conditions. And I would say why? Because all the children who are in, at school age, they continue to go to schools. They continue to achieve. We continue to have tens of thousands of people who join university every year. We have tens of thousands who graduate from universities every year. This is something to be proud of. We have the highest level of education, maybe in the Middle East. But again, unfortunately, unemployment rates are extremely high, especially when it comes to people below the age of 30, especially when it comes to women below the age of, um, of 30. Thank you. Um, I, I think that offers two important reminders, which is that even living under such conditions, you know, regular life does not stop. So especially for caregivers and families. And so we're constantly, I think, hearing about, you know, the after effects of, of bombing and things like that. But I think it's underappreciated that, you know, people are still trying to send their children to school and, you know, the compounding stressors of that, of trying to maintain some sense of normalcy, especially for children, um, is magnified by their inability to do so due to all these external factors. And I think it, it's also important to note here that the, the when you layer the gender norms, the gender expectations of women in, in these kinds of societies, and that they do take on the bulk of, of the household work, which is, again, complicated by all these external factors, it really exacerbates, I think, the stressors um, of women in, in these environments who, like you say, probably have zero time to actually process and wrestle with their own needs and their own mental health struggles. And uh, I think that that's a really powerful aspect of this study. Um, Ghada, earlier you, you noted that 35% of respondents who reported high levels of depression and anxiety in your study had lost a family member after not receiving a medical permit from the Israelis. Um, so you and I have talked a lot about this issue. This is an issue of particular interest to me um, in my work, and yet I think is an issue that is particularly un unexplored and not understood um, in outside of public health circles, even those specifically dealing with Palestine. Um, so can you briefly tell us a little bit about this permit system um, and, and how it works? Where are these patients trying to go? Why do they have to apply for a permit? And a little bit about, because I know PHR, a lot of your work is in advocating for permits and helping overturn permit denials. So can you tell us a little also about the likelihood of receiving a permit and what it's, you know, the stresses of trying to apply for these permits, especially because you're applying for an Israeli permit. So you're applying for a permit from the same regime that imposes the siege and deprivation that causes them to need to leave to get health care to begin with. So again, I know this is a topic we could have an entire conversation about, but can you tell us and, and kind of explain to our audience a little bit about that? 
Yeah, thank you, Yara, for the question. Um, I was just gonna like, I'm not sure if it's to start from the end, but to add to what you said, it's funny that Israel created the problem in the first place of a healthcare system that has been challenged. And also it is good also to mention that succeeded um, despite the conditions to meet the needs of the population. And then when they are required uh, or when they uh, need a, when patients need a medical permit outside of Gaza, for example, then they need to apply for the same um, system that created the problem in the first place. So um, I'm not sure uh, where to start, but I would, uh, I'm gonna assume that the listeners and the audience know that um, Israel control the uh, movement between the Gaza Strip, the West Bank and uh, East Jerusalem because they also control the checkpoints, uh, whether the Eris uh, checkpoints or uh, uh, other checkpoints in uh, the West Bank and between the West Bank and um, uh, Jerusalem. So uh, since Israel controls the uh, movement between different uh, Palestinian uh, areas, then it also uh, controls, it, this control also includes control over uh, the movement of uh, patients. So the situation today is, um, is like this. Uh, there's a um, shortage in uh, medical supplies, shortage in expertise, uh, shortage in medications, especially in the Gaza Strip, but also in the West Bank. And uh, in short, I will say that it is mainly because of the Israeli control over and the, the blockade over the Palestinian um, territory. So for example, uh, Israel uh, controls the imports and the exports uh, during the COVID-19, if the Palestinian Authority wanted to uh, import uh, a specific sort of uh, type of vaccination. It was uh, the Israeli uh, health ministry uh, had to approve this vaccination so it can be delivered to the West Bank and to, uh, uh, to the Gaza Strip. So these restrictions apply also for patients. Uh, all the patients from the Gaza Strip and from the West Bank uh, if they want to access medical treatment, which is unavailable in their uh, place of re residence, they have to go through uh, a very bureaucratic process of applying for uh, the permit uh, regime. First, they need, uh, they, there's a committee within the Palestinian uh, health ministry that um, examine uh, a, examine the, the referral. Uh, they also provide the financial coverage and then uh, patients can apply for the Israeli permit uh, through the uh, civil administration, the Palestinian civil administration in the Gaza uh, Strip. It's a very long and tedious process, 
where uh, patients are required to apply 23 days before their appointment in uh, hospitals. And there's also another route for uh, life-saving uh, treatments. More than 80% of Palestinian patients, whether from the Gaza Strip or from the West Bank, are referred to Palestinian hospitals, whether governmental or private hospitals. And they are all part of the Palestinian healthcare system, and yet they have to apply for the Israeli permit, which is uh, absurd. Um, so if you are a cancer patient, for example, and uh, your chemotherapy treatment isn't available in Gaza, uh, almost 40% of medications for chemotherapy treatments are not available in Gaza, radiotherapy treatment isn't available at all in the Gaza Strip, then you have to apply for a permit every time you have a treatment uh, in the West Bank or in uh, East Jerusalem. Uh, the rates uh, for 2019 until uh, 2022 were uh, higher than uh, recent years, but it's still, um, I think the rate was 65%, only 65% of those who applied for an Israeli permit from the Gaza Strip and from the West Bank were denied the Israeli permit. It can be for security, what Israel calls security reasons. It can be uh, for uh, criteria, uh, as Israel also interfere uh, in um, medical and health considerations. Uh, it can be for other bureaucratic reasons. For example, um, these are unclear uh, documents. Uh, we don't have your phone uh, numbers. And uh, I can say that from our experience and experience of other human rights organizations working to challenge this permit regime, specifically when we're speaking about patients, um, these uh, decisions made by the Israeli army are very arbitrary because when we appeal whether for the uh, uh, COGAT, which is the coordination of government activities in the Palestinian uh, territory, or uh, to um, Israeli courts, in 50% of these cases, we are uh, were able to overturn these decisions. And the second thing that is very important to notice as well is that Israel has been uh, abusing its control over the permit regime and the, the very existence of the permit regime in order to um, control the Palestinian uh, population and exploit their needs uh, of health for uh, exerting political pressure on Hamas's government and uh, sometimes to gathering um, intelligence information about uh, the population. Thank you. Um, and I know that was a very complex and, and technical, but just as a reminder to everyone, you know, when you're in a health situation, it's obvious, it's oftentimes sensitive. And so to consider going through this process for yourself or for your child or for your elderly parent, when you're already feeling the stress and vulnerability of dealing with you know, someone being diagnosed with cancer or needing brain or heart surgery, um, you can see how the denial or delay of these permits would absolutely lead to 
distress and, and mental health trauma um, is, yeah, if it happens in your family. So thank you for that, Gada. And I think in the chat, we will try to share um, uh, a, a, a position paper from PHRI on receiving a medical permit for those interested. Um, Razan, I'd like to turn to you next. Um, so, you know, I want to ask you to think with me as we kind of get close to wrapping up here and, and with us about how we approach research on mental health. We kind of broached this a little in the beginning. Um, so as one of the findings in the study, obviously, is we see you know, high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And this is a common framing used in situations of armed conflict. Um, you know, especially after the Vietnam War. Um, and I, along with many others who have made this similar argument, we have, there's there's kind of this issue or tension with this term because of course, Palestinians, especially those in the Gaza Strip are not post-trauma. Um, the trauma is ongoing. You know, the fear of bombardment or deprivation is not an irrational or remnant fear. It is an ongoing persistent fear that, you know, is reignited every time there is a round of airstrikes or every time something is unavailable for medical care or shoes or whatever you need for your household. Um, yet I use this framing in my work and everyone who studies mental health in Palestine does so, you know, PTSD is a common understanding. And, and again, for, for publishing in international journals, for op-eds, for being able to situate Palestine globally, it is useful. So can you help me understand how you approach using this term and this framing? Um, I'm thinking about how I and other scholars um, want to use language that is clear and understandable for international audiences, but also doesn't erase the nuance and specificity of the Palestinian experience. Yes, thank you very much, Yara. Um, I think similar to earlier, you know, it's it's useful in as much as it is a shared language, like the just like, you know, the way that we understand that nomothetically, so in a categorical way to say PTSD has a certain kind of um, understanding conceptualization a person gets. And that's helpful to kind of bring us onto the same table. Um, I will and I encourage and I push us to move, though, in a different direction. So you can come as a starting point and use these measures. Um, you know, I have to do a lot of PTSD measures for a lot of asylum seekers coming into the U.S. just to apply for their asylum to U.S. government. So, you know, we, we can do that. And that's quite different because there's a post situation. There are many scholars in Palestine from Lina Mahadi to uh, Murad Ahmed, although maybe a lot of the work is done in Arabic, um, you know, they, they are really problematizing PTSD the post in the traumatic stress disorder aspect. And I encourage us, and folks are doing this, you know, I, the Institute for Community and Public Health at Birzeit University of, of um, really creating measures that are specific to our context. Because how PTSD came to, to be, right? You, you named Vietnam, because that's the most like kind of, but it also started in, in the European context of journaling of what was happening to soldiers from World War I and World War II, and then returning to other countries. And so, in our situation, just like Dr. Yasser mentioned, like Rada mentions, and then you said, there is a you're you're kind of you're staying in the muck of it. You're 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 in the midst of it. It's actually more pathological, more sickly, more disease-like for you to have a post-response to a chronic situation, right? So, and I think that is something that um, Rada, your research touches on, 
when you were citing um, one of the signifiers of the hopelessness, what came to my mind was um, in that quote, you know, like, okay, I've survived this time. I don't know how much more I can survive. I, I don't believe I'll survive the future. This hopelessness is very much tied to the capacity to envision and plan or executive functioning capacity, right? And so this is the insidiousness of the Zionist regime, because what it does is in implanting this idea of hopelessness, there's the, there's the, there's a almost up titration for our chemist lovers of a death drip of saying like, there is no opportunity here. This is the psychological operations. This is another form of the, the warfare. It's saying that this Zionist aggression is not only obliterating all of the spaces you see around you, it's obliterating you. And in that way, how are you then supposed to show up to even wake up early enough to go get the water when that is a necessity, um, when you know the motors are only working for electricity at a certain time of day to, to push through? Um, for, for more of our Western audience, I'll use a, a Western psychologist that was quite well known, Donald Winnicott, when he wrote about like transitional phenomenon. I, I think about that into adulthood, you know, that kind of manifest. It starts as children in the space of play, but we carry it on as adults into our spaces of intellectualizing, philosophizing, creativity, art. And so what is happening with this hopelessness, it's a form of also obliterating, debilitating the capacity to create anew. And despite this, we see in Gaza, there is such a, you know, um, I don't know if others know this outside of the Palestine context, but we tend to say that the funniest people are like the Gazazwit, people from Gaza, just have a remarkable sense of humor. It, it's true, like tragedy breeds that, but there's also a smooth, um, you know, a kind of um, re, uh, importance there as something that perseverance, a steadfastness that pushes through. Um, and recent research is actually more in the behavioral frame is showing that for you to create a new habit, it takes about 60 to 70 iterations of a behavior. However, if you infuse it with play, it only takes between five to 10 iterations. And so let's think complexly about those layers. What happens when we're, we're debilitating the capacity to seek hope, to seek the executive function to plan and to strategize? We're also limiting and you need that space to play. Um, another thing I think about when, when considering um, traumatic disorders in Palestine and Palestine and in Gaza specific, this emotional blunting that you spoke about, Rada, um, this is another way where, like, I want to remind, when we have to blunt the pain, we're also blunting the pleasure, right? So uh, very commonly when people are like, oh, I want an antidepressant, I sometimes like fight against that and say, it's an SSRI. It's important because using the label antidepressants make it seem like there's an antidote to the depression. In reality, what it's going to do is it's going to blunt and buffer some of the intensity of those symptoms, which are great and let's do it, but also understand that the pleasurable aspects and sensations of your life are also going to be blunted. Um, and so this is another level of the dehumanization that folks in Palestine and specifically Gaza are exposed to, of, of kind of saying to, to live on, there's, there's, a, there's an incapacity to live a fullness of being in life. Um, and then the, the signifier of the, that you all measured for PTSD that usually goes into systematized, like the clinician administered PTSD inventory, which is usually what we use, um, the, the rates of like anxiety and irritation. I want to say here that like the intergenerational link is really important. There's a lot of wonderful research being done on epigenetics. And one of the things we see, and I think most of these studies were done in the US context based after the uh, Twin Tower attacks, was that um, caregivers that gave birth to their children then after, the children had higher rates of ADHD and ADD. 
And what they realized was that there was an importance because the, the women were exposed to intense or, or the carriers um, were, were exposed to intense traumatic effect. Um, the proliferation of those glucose, the stress hormones in the body makes it so the child is, it is developing in an evolutionary way to have the capacity to be more on the lookout. I mean, you know, to kind of not be so tunnel vision and capacity to look around is actually going to save your life. Um, and so how it might be read here. So, sorry, let me take a step back. What I'm trying to say is let's consider who this normativity benefits and what are we looking at when we say this is the normal way to be. Do I want for children coming up in Gaza right now to be plagued with, you know, the, the struggles of being neurodivergent in a dominantly like capitalist neoliberal world that demands of the subject to be a certain way? Of course not. And will I pathologize that? I will not look at the child and say, you have an issue now, let me give you Ritalin or a certain kind of medication. I'm going to look at in this situation, the context. So in writing your papers, doing your, your research, look at that tie, the anxiety, the irritation, the agitation to where it's also emanating from and what outcomes it might have then for gender-based relations in a country or how you might see other dynamics occurring in a society. Um, there's this really um, important uh, quote that's from um, this practitioner, um, black African-American practitioner in the US, his name is Resma Manakim. If I can read it to you all, it's very brief. But he teaches us and he says, trauma decontextualized in a person looks like personality. Trauma decontextualized in peoples looks like culture. What happens over time is that our state becomes trait, becomes identity, becomes culture. And so what I always suggest for researchers, scholars, practitioners, is to now take that quote and move it the other way around, backwards. What am I looking at as culture? There were some in my, they landed for me as offensive questions in the chat, trying to categorize a certain way of being as the cause of this. So I would, I would start to walk back instead of ask, how does a religion affect this? I say, how has culture come to be from identity? And how has identity come to be from this trait? And how did this trait come to be from the state? And, and kind of like move through that. Um, and as a, as a last uh, thing, um, also from a really wonderful abolitionist based uh, on Turtle Island, um, uh, uh, she teaches us um, that, uh, you know, hope is the discipline. It's a practice. It's a thing you must return to. And I find that in the irritation and agitation, you know, sometimes in Philistine itself, I might be like, oh my God, can't you take a chill pill? <laughs> but um, at the same time, I'm also like, it's so important that we have this insistence and grit and unruliness and defiance and disruption, because that is what you need when you have a constant system and states that are pushing you down, pushing you down to bend that will. And so when you hold on to your will, I think that is better than any medicine, any talk therapy I may provide in an individual, you know, treatment modality, holding on to that. Um, and I believe and our people have shown us that they have the capacity to imagine new worlds and how to make that possible. Like Gaza's, like the people from Gaza having wonderful humor, sense of humor and infusing it. Um, yeah, so that, that's what I would say for that question. Well, thank you. That was such a rich response. And I think um, if you could share actually in the chat uh, some of the scholars you mentioned for um, our, our listeners and our audience and myself who would like to follow up on that work, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right. I think, you know, we often 
pathologize and, and look at the end outcomes, the understandable mental health outcomes of this. But the fact that Palestinians remain and exist as a people and still have held on to their culture and identity, despite these multiple systems that have fought against that from a Palestinian flag to speaking Arabic to, you know, maintaining, um, you know, foraging our, our wild foods that we eat, I think speaks highly of, of you know, this, this kind of um, resilience and this holding on that we also, I think, need to acknowledge. Um, so I, I'd like to, um, Yasser, I first want to ask you if you have any uh, remarks about this, this term. I mean, you're a mental health uh, professional and expert yourself of PTSD. Um, and then I also want to ask you a kind of larger question, you know, often in these webinars and in papers, you know, people ask, well, what can we do? What can be done? And often the answer is, is, is broad, you know, end the siege end the occupation, you know, decolonize. Um, I want to ask you about the tension between addressing the siege and its impact and also addressing the immediate needs of the people you serve in your role as a director of a Gaza Community Mental Health Program. So how, if you do both, how do you do both? You know, how do you deal with the short term, the patient sitting in front of you and the long term understanding that until these conditions end, there will continue to be patients who come to see you? Um, do you, and in your work as a mental health professional, is, is advocating against the siege a part of that? And also, uh, is there a particular tension with funders and international partners who want to support or invest in projects for the end goal um, that are focused on particular outcomes, um, but tend to take the siege as a given, as something that can't be changed? So like, what is achievable within the context of siege, not how can we work to lift the siege altogether? Um, you know, how do you deal with, with all of those tensions in your role? Thank you, Yara. I mean, <clears throat> this, I think, uh, more than three questions together, I try to answer as, as short as, uh, or as... I, it it, it was a lot, absolutely. Yeah, as possible. I will not go to talk more about the term of PTSD. You know, I think Razan just put, every, put everything in a very nice and wonderful way. Uh, but still, that term PTSD is... Uh, it's, it's the term that is used academically, internationally to speak about the impact of trauma. Uh, it's definitely not the most appropriate one to talk about the suffering of the Palestinian people. However, it will continue to be there. You know, this is something that we need to keep in our mind. But what's important is to shed the light all the time on the specifications, on the context that the people in, in, in Palestine at large live. And you know, it's an ongoing, traumatizing, re-traumatizing, transgenerationals full with different types of uh, human rights violations that impact the people either individually or collectively. So with that, a lot of things happen. And we try our best when we write with our articles, scientific articles or in general uh, uh, journals to just shed light on what, what is life really in Gaza because you know, after all, we are all humans, you know, it's very important to understand what's really happening. And sometimes those figures are, unfortunately, you know, they are just figures, you know. Each uh, single person suffering is really important to be addressed, to be looked into, you know. That's why in GCMHP, since we were established in 1990 by the late Ian who was not only a brilliant psychiatrist, but also a human rights advocate, you know, 
human rights defender, the idea was that most of the suffering of the people of the of the people in Palestine comes from human rights violations, you know, violations to the rights that should be uh, enforced, if I could say, by the international laws. You know, we have different laws that are adapted internationally by UN organizations that apply. Most of them apply to the conditions in uh, in Palestine. Uh, we are mental health professionals. We work in the Gaza community mental health program. We have three community centers. What we immediately deal with, for example, and see with time, we talk to, we, we continue to speak about two things that we observe. So we observe one is relapse. You know, relapse happen a lot often. You know, especially when it comes to, for example, uh, families who live in uh, in uh, 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 neighborhoods that near the separation uh, fence, you know, for example, because these are almost frequently uh, exposed to the uh, attacks. You know, they are at the, the most uh, uh, difficult areas, and some of the houses were destroyed more than two times, even before in two different occasions. But people don't have any other place to go to, and they shouldn't really go to another place to defend, because these are their own. Uh, living places there on uh, living uh, uh, land. So in many of the cases, you know, there is no big, large scale operation, but a bombardment would happen and here or there. And then the loud explosive sound would cause a lot of children, for example, to relapse. And then the implications is that maybe bedwetting is back, maybe night uh, terrors or night mirrors are back, sleeping difficulties or, uh, uh, or uh, uh, clear PTSD, if we could say, uh, uh, symptoms. So one of the things is the uh, relapse. The other thing is that it's uh, it's really more difficult to help people go over their difficulties. You know, it's more difficult to uh, help people uh, be treated, if we could say, you know, treated of the uh, difficulties they face, treated of when they have a diagnosis that they have. You know, because we also have a multidisciplinary team, both of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and nurses. And we look at the people with a diagnosis, you know, that is either related to the uh, traumatizing events or related to the, uh, let me say, to the ongoing uh, uh, economic conditions. The main two diagnoses that we have uh, at our community centers are depression. Uh, almost 40% of women who come to our community centers have depression, 35% of men. And then the second one is trauma, trauma-related, anxiety, fear such kind of various disorders. And these are like 35% of uh, uh, men, about 30% of women. And then the remaining is different various conditions. For children, the main diagnosis that come is PTSD, bedwetting, and sleep uh, uh, difficulties, sleep problems. So it's really becoming more and more difficult to help people go out of the, uh, uh, for example, depression they, uh, they have. We used sometimes to use uh, cognitive therapy, sometimes cognitive behavior or, or, or psychotherapy, sometimes medication, sometimes both. But it's getting more into both because it's getting more difficult to help people get over uh, uh, things when they reach the level of having a diagnosis. At the same time, there is a huge uh, level of despair, you know. Uh, this is very... Uh, uh, strange, you know, when you see people continue to struggle with their daily life, and continue to try to support their families, to support their children, try to think about the future, invest in their children, academic performance, for example, and at the same time face 
issues with despair, you know, you know, like the continuous difficult socioeconomic conditions, losing a job, for example, getting a very small wage that is not enough just to go on with your uh, with your uh, daily needs. And, and this continue to be there. How can you help? Well, outside of our clinical work, we try, for example, to educate the society at large, you know, because education is very important. Health, you know, mental health is also part of health. It's all the time important to help people, um, and let me say, cope, increase their coping mechanisms, styles, enable them or help them to address the difficulties that are, or the symptoms that are caused by the current conditions when their children start to uh, show symptoms of uh, of trauma, symptoms of anxiety, you know, um, and that's something important. And internationally, what we try to do is that we bring the Palestinian experience to the international community, you know, because uh, again, I think the international community has an obligation to try to support the Palestinian people, to work on supporting the Palestinian people, because justice is a global phenomenon. It's not related to a specific race or a specific nature of people or specific color, you know. We are all alike, you know, and we need to think of uh, uh, all lives, you know, all populations, Palestinians as well as Ukrainians, for example. We are the same, yeah? We are the same, you know. Palestine and Ukraine, it's the same. Uh, uh, the same, I mean, the same struggle, the same uh, conditions. We deserve to be looked after, you know, like the other uh, areas in, uh, in the world. And above all, in the terms of humanity, you know. So we try to bring that to the surface. The, the project, the research component of the project with Physicians for Human Rights was to look into that, to think what can be done Actually, this uh, event, thanks to the organizers, is also part of our advocacy that please, people, look at what happens when the human rights are not uh, uh, respected. What can we all collectively do together? A lot of the things are at the political level, but again, we are mental health advocates, we are human rights defenders, we try our best, and we just try our best to shed the light here and there when there is a chance to do that. But a lot of the work is on the shoulders of this international organizational community that put by itself rules that we all need to follow without any exception. Thank you. Well, I hope uh, I hope that they're listening. <laughs> um, I know we've gone a few minutes over and I appreciate everyone's patience, um, but for the very last question, Rada, I will end with you. It's a similar question. Um, from your positionality, as someone working in an organization uh, that's you know tasked with advocacy, um, what are steps that can be taken to ease the burden of women like those in the study and of others in Gaza today, while recognizing that ultimately what we need is radical structural change? So how do we do both? And, and do you address both in your work uh, in PHR? I. Yeah, thank you Yara, for the question. Um, I think that the tension between addressing the root causes of uh, the humanitarian situation, the mental health situation, and um, advocating for individuals, uh, whether it's uh, for the um, uh, obtaining the permit or uh, other types of um, advocacy for other causes. I think that the tension is always there and it's one of the most 
frustrating things in our work. Uh, on the one hand, we're, you know, holding this, um, uh, acknowledging and recognizing the importance of the immediate needs of the people that we are in contact with them and in touch with them on a daily basis. And on the other hand, we also see how uh, the fact that uh, the international uh, community and various uh, communities and audiences prefer to uh, avoid addressing the um, structural um, reasons of the situation that we have today, whether in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank or in historic Palestine in general, uh, we see how this also, um, maybe I would say that it delays, you know, um, reaching a, a political, uh, you know, uh, I would say resolution where there is no siege on the Gaza Strip and where Palestinians have sovereignty, where they can, where they have autonomy and then where they can also, you know, build and uh, develop their own um, um, health uh, systems and, you know, other uh, structures and systems. Uh, yet, uh, we, do, we do acknowledge that sometimes there is some, um, Hope in uh, advocating for individuals or advocating for specific things without necessarily addressing the structures the, um, um, of you know the uh, the occupation or the political uh, situation. Uh, I I wouldn't say that it is necessarily also sustainable because. I do believe, and this is one of the things that I advocate for also within the organization and whenever I speak about this, is that uh, from my experience, when we don't address the structural uh, root causes, we can't expect that there's gonna be, um, you know, a, um, a, a profound change in the reality of Palestinians. So we can choose to continue doing this because we uh, can help individuals in a certain point of time when they need, for example, a medical permit. And I do think that there is um, uh, a difference between mental health services because this is something that people need, whether they live under occupation or uh, civil, uh, a civil war or other types of, you know, difficult uh, uh, realities or um, if, for example, humanitarian assistance, uh, capacity buildings uh, in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank, and providing medical care and helping with the permit regime. I do think that these are different things. Um, I don't know. Like, I think that people would hope to hear that, yeah, we can hold both of them and we can do both of them. But from my experience and our experience in position for human rights, and we've been doing the humanitarian assistance for decades now, it can help in the short term. But if we look um, retrospect ret retrospectively, then we can see that there's only a deterioration 
not only in the political you know landscape but also in terms of the health of Palestinians and uh, when it comes to the uh, rates of uh, people who obtain uh, the, per the, the permit or delayed uh, the permit. So uh, I think this tension is always there and I think it's um, one of the most difficult things is to try to hold these two and to choose sometimes to avoid addressing the uh, um, root causes uh, so you can mobilize several uh, uh, community uh, to, you know, voice uh, their opposition to uh, specific policies where they have, you know, um, uh, impact on the health of Palestinians. But for example, they want, you know, uh, be ready or uh, willing to uh, speak of the uh, you know, larger context of the political uh, situation. So it's, I think it's sometimes it's uh, a strategy that we can follow, but it has also um, cons as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I and I think, you know, recognizing the good work PHRI does for individuals and also recognizing that this is not a tension that we can fully adjudicate in an hour and a half webinar. This is something that I think everyone on this call and, and in this field wrestles with regularly and I think will continue to do so. And, um, you know, liberation requires a lot of efforts. It's a large ecosystem of actors. And so I think you know, these conversations have a role to play in, in what that ultimately looks like. Um, thank you so much, Rada, Razan, and Yasser for today's conversation. And thank you to everyone who joined us or listened to this event. Uh, I feel so grateful to be able to share this conversation with you. I feel like I could keep going for another hour or so. Um, I know I wasn't able to get to everyone's questions, but hopefully some will be answered in the follow-up email and the resources we share after the fact. Um, please check back at the FMEP website, www.fmepfmep.org, for a list of resources relating to the conversation we just had and for announcements of upcoming events, webinars, podcasts on this and other multitude of topics. Thank you all for joining and until next time.